Hello, everybody, and welcome to What the Health, a podcast dedicated to helping you navigate your way to better health. I'm Lena Lahire, certified personal trainer, nutrition coach, best-selling author, and psychology student at the University of Calgary. I'll be discussing topics that range from nutrition, fitness, lifestyle, and everything in between so you can feel confident in how to move towards better health physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Thank you so much for joining me. Let's get into our topic for the day. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the show. Today, I have special guest, Dr. James Cresswell, joining me to talk about the effects that social media and artificial intelligence have on our mental health. James, or Jim Cresswell, comes from Ambrose University, where he is an associate professor of psychology. He has published over 30 articles and book chapters, has edited three books, and has recently released Culture and the Cognitive Science of Religion through Rutledge Press in 2017, winning numerous awards from local and national organizations such as the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council. A large portion of his work involves community-based research aimed at using research to support community organizations. Along with an impressive CV, Jim's other areas of interest include poverty, theoretical, historical, and philosophical psychology, cognitive science of religion, and immigration. He has a deep commitment to education and enhancing the student experience, and his enthusiasm and passion are sure to inspire. Hello, Jim, and welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. This is really exciting. I am really excited. That's uh, also exciting about your book. I did have a chance to look it up online. That's a big book. Yeah. Cognitive Science. Cognitive Science of Religion. Yeah, very interesting. Now, social media is such a huge topic, Mm -hmm. vast, and there's so many different areas that we could get into when discussing social media, but in terms of our mental health, you know, how do we unpack what social media is doing? You you came up, uh, you said this, mentioned a term called hyper-reality. Can we start maybe by you explaining what hyper-reality is? Sure. Uh, yeah, so hyper-reality. Uh, if you think about reality that is life, it's often messy and unclean. So, for example, if we uh, listen, if you go to a, a concert, and what's interesting about a concert, a small pub or something like that is, you know, people miss chords, there are mistakes, there's glitches, things don't work. A, uh, uh, you know, the, the lead singer may kind of stop or recount. There's all these kind of like, kind of little moments where things aren't perfect. Mm-hmm. And the only reason that we know so they're not perfect is because we're in this hyper real world where with music, for example, we're giving, we're given piles of overly produced perfect music. Right. Right. So on a CD, on uh, uh, sorry, when you download music, I get just a picture of my age there, didn't I? <laughs> I'm like, yeah, yeah, CDs. CDs. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the, these are these are highly produced things that are they're so perfect that they're actually kind of divorced from reality in a sense because reality is messy. Reality mm-hmm. is uh, like human relationships, for example have moments where things don't work well, mm-hmm. mo- moments where things kind of misalign, and that's kind of how life actually is. But the problem is that uh, we are in an environment that's hyper-real in the sense that it's hyper-engineered. Right. 
So when uh, most of our environment uh, includes things like our applications, it includes things like our, like technology, uh, like uh, different kind of streaming services, what have you, that we go on and we engage these things, and they're completely oriented around us to giving us this kind of immersive experience that is um, not really kind of reflective of the messiness and, and grit of mm. everyday life. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So the problem is that this hyper-reality is so good and so prevalent by virtue of our kind of technologically saturated life that we actually think that's the way life should be. Right. But in fact, life is not like that. Mm -hmm. So take, take Facebook, the classic example where we have a friend who will post wonderful long stories about how good their life is, they take pictures of their food and Vacations. It, oh yeah, vacations, and it just—it looks—it looks amazing. Like the life looks really awesome. Mm -hmm. I'm saying really, isn't really awesome, but in fact, it's that's a hyper reality mm -hmm. because those person, that person will come over for a cup of coffee, and you realize they're thinking about leaving their, their partner, mm -hmm. or they're mm -hmm. lonely, mm -hmm. crushingly lonely, mm -hmm. right? Or, or or scared, so nervous about going out. Uh, you know, it takes them three hours to prep to go for dinner. And there's this kind of way in which this anxiety and fear and all the kind of normal ebbs and flows of everyday life, they're engineered out of, out of our experience. Mm -hmm. What that leaves us is a space where our kind of calib our mental calibration, uh, that is the expectations that we have for life, are kind of altered. Mm -hmm. And they're made hyper real. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then there's this fracturing. So, so what happens is we think that relationships should be completely beautiful. We think that intimacy is about resonance, but no, intimacy is about negotiating tensions mm -hmm. and things that don't work. Uh, friendships are about moments of irritance and, uh, and moments of obligation where you have, okay, I'll well get up and help this person move even though I don't want to get up on Saturday morning. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But the hyper-real life, which is so accustomed to absorbing us into it, creates this fracture from what we really experience. And, and so our mental kind of benchmarks are misaligned, mm. which leaves a problem. Mm -hmm. Because eventually, normal reality comes knocking. Mm -hmm. Something mm -hmm. doesn't work. A uh, relationship breaks down. Uh, friends, uh, friends disappear or, or they die or, or things like this happens. And the hyper-reality leaves us in a space of kind of confusion. Right. Where we don't... We think, well, hey, things are supposed to be really good. Things are supposed to be really awesome. Uh, but in fact, no, that's not how life is. Life is much more dynamic and flexible in the ebbs and flows, and it's not engineered for us. Mm -hmm. Life is, we work together with people in it. Right. I think, you know, in terms of uh, Instagram, we call it the highlight reel. Oh, yeah. And how people only show the good parts of their life. And even though we know that life has all this messiness, when we're constantly, like you said, just immersed in this hyper-reality, it's so hard to say, well, yeah, I know, I know that that's not true, but mm -hmm. what we see isn't reflective of that. And so like, how do we really unpack that and 
get more real while still being on social media? Like, how do we navigate this world? Yeah, very good point. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I like I want to comment on something. Uh, I'll come back to your question, but I do want to comment on something right in the middle, if that's okay. Yeah. Which is, you hit on this, this point of, um, we know that people's lives aren't that great. Or we know that someone on Instagram actually isn't that good looking or what have you, right? We know that. Yet somehow we still seem to be sucked up into this uh, uh, this weird kind of expectations, this hyper-real expectations. Mm-hmm. So what's going on there? Mm-hmm. Uh, there's, a, there's a large space or difference between uh, the types of things that we know if we're calm, we're quiet, we're feeling mellow, and we can think about, that's, yeah, we do know people's lives are messy. Mm-hmm. But the problem is that most of us spend our lives kind of caught up in almost automatic processing. Right. An autom- automated life. And there, our intuitive knowledge kind of takes over. And our intuitive knowledge, so psychologically what happens is we have this, this uh, benchmark of uh, this is how great the world is, this hyper-real benchmark, and intuitively our psychological structure is such that we use that benchmark intuitively, mm-hmm. and that becomes what we automatically fall into using. And very rarely do we have an opportunity to slow down mm-hmm. and think systematically. Mm-hmm. So this, this high, kind of this intuitive, wow, my life sucks, becomes the operating principles. Right. And that becomes this grounding of chronic anxiety and the fears that we have and the, all the, um, the confusions because we're just intuitively using this very powerful benchmark and we don't even see our own. Like creating a new heuristic to Absolutely. use. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Yeah, these mental shortcuts. Yeah. We use them and they structure our automatic experience because everybody knows. Mm-hmm. However, they only know when they're calm, quiet, and they're not entertained. Now the problem is how many times do we have those moments? Mm-hmm. Like our life is so absorbed mm-hmm. with a lot of other stuff that we don't actually have opportunity for these moments. So for example, on a streaming platform, there's five seconds of that moment at the end of a show mm-hmm. before another one restarts. Yeah, like five seconds. Yeah, literally, I mean, literally yeah, <laughs> yeah. five seconds and you can see it counting down. So me, there's a pressure to hit click uh, next episode. Yeah. Um, so we're, we are constantly caught up in hyper-realism, mm-hmm. right, uh, d- despite ourselves. Uh, because there's some excellent work talking about um, a kind of human cognition and the current experiences that we have where moments where life feels slow are so foreign to us that they actually feel frightening. Yes. Right. And so we want to accelerate. We and feel... like agitating. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. For me, this all started uh, about three years ago. I started looking at technology. I woke up in the morning, and in the morning I have kind of a uh, kind of a kind of reflection pra- reflective practice where I think about and, and do some meditative stuff. And I noticed first thing I woke up, I felt deeply, deeply compelled to check my email, and I, I had no good reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, to check it at six in the morning when I wake up. And why is it that I feel this, in my gut, this anxiety that I have to check it? It's because I'm so used to that flow that 
the moment of slowing down, the moment of ponderance, the moments of kind of personal self-reflection mm-hmm. is just so foreign to me that I always get uh, compelled mm-hmm. into this hyper-reality. Because the hyper-reality feels uh, more real. So when you move out of it, it's anxiety-provoking because the hyper-reality gives us a sense of control, an engineered environment like your, your applications are completely engineered around you to map your experience and, and help keep you there, keep you excited, keep you feeling kind of anesthetic, kind oh. of half asleep. They're designed to do that. With that comes a sense of control and ease and predictability. Right. When you move into real life, things might go wrong and you might have to adapt. And so, of course, there's a huge kind of, um, uh, in a way, let me say it this way, I'm sorry. Our hyper-real world engineers life such that we are ill-prepared to deal with the ebbs and flows of reality. Yeah. And the reality is all of us have days where we feel good. Mm -hmm. All of us have days where we feel bad. All of us, that's life. But those, that flexibility and movement and flow is something that becomes almost foreign and anxiety provoking mm-hmm. to us. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, now you, I, I, uh, I took us on a tangent there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How do we navigate our way through hyper-reality and yeah. being online? And because social media can do a lot of helpful things. It mm. can be helpful in many ways. But it's also paired with things and realities that can harm us. So, like, how do we how do we navigate that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's it's really important to think about how do we navigate and move out of it. And uh, I think the uh, I'm gonna there's a there's an author named Alter who talks about irresistible the the rise of addictive technologies. Mm. And what he says in the in the book there is try a little bit of detox, which is. Uh, a bit of an analogy. I want to be careful. I'm personally not comfortable with calling everything an addiction. Mm-hmm. People love to call everything addiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, the addicts I've worked with, a family member and other addicts that I've worked with, uh, that ad- that addiction is really, really bad. Mm-hmm. It causes lots of problems. Mm-hmm. So I'll talk about compulsions, if that's okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely. So the compulsions, um, when we stop our compulsions, that is we don't, let's say you, you set a boundary around when you're going to check email or you set a boundary uh, around when you're gonna be on Facebook or something like that, there will be an experience that's something like a detox. Mm-hmm. Because these compulsive behaviors are also emotion regulators. So if we're nervous or anxious, uh, so dopamine, uh, I'm sorry, Instagram, sorry, I shouldn't name apps, but <laughs> most of the main apps out there are specifically designed around manipulating dopamine release in your, in your, uh, in your brainstem. So that means that these kind of compulsive behaviors, we hang on to them because they help us regulate our emotions. Mm. So one of the first things to do is engage in some sort of detox, pulling away, and it feels really awkward. Mm -hmm. Uh, For example, uh, not checking email for a week or something like that, or or even a day. That gives me anxiety just thinking about it. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Now, it's not because anything that, if you really do a reality check and like write, journal and write out what's what's really going to happen here, well, nothing. Yeah. Nothing really bad is going to happen that you can't recover from. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it feels as if. 
because the reality that we live in is so engineered and structured, pulling away from that detoxing, what that does is it, it just primes all the kind of anxieties that we normally would feel, but we regulate using these technologies, mm. right? Because technologies are powerful emotional regulators. Mm -hmm. and, 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 you know, with, the, with people being so accessible, mm. you know, I feel even pulling away, you still know that other people, if they try and get a hold of you, they're expecting you, say you work at an office where there's a lot of uh, electronic control, mm -hmm. and they're trying to get a hold of you, but you've decided to back away from your email, that could create tension as mm -hmm. well, right? Because other people are always accessible. Now all of a sudden you've taken yourself off the market to being accessible 24 seven. Right. And those boundaries are, I imagine are very hard to manage. Yeah, yeah, because humans exist in kind of communities. Mm -hmm. So of course, uh, uh, like if, if one pulls back and does a bit of a detox, what it, what it produces is, is a kind of a, a ripple effect mm -hmm. on people around us because they also feel anxious. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, in my job, students will often email me and, and my, uh, my colleague and I were actually doing an experiment in each of us, in one of our classes, we've decided to go completely technology free. So there's no email, no PowerPoints, uh, there are some paper handouts, but it's a completely technology-free mm -hmm. class. Mm -hmm. And uh, we checked in with the students two weeks ago, and what came up for students was the level of anxiety because they don't have email. And so in the conversation, it's only a class of 25, so we can have a conversation. In the conversation, the students said, well, we don't need to email you but we feel much more comfortable if it's there. Like a safety blanket. A safety blanket, right? And that's that kind of thing, that's that kind of emotional regulator that I'm talking mm -hmm. about. So a, a detox or pulling away, I, I wanna be really careful. What I'm talking, not talking about here is uh, suddenly moving to the mountains and deconnecting. I'm talking about setting some uh, boundaries in place. So for example, Tristan Harris, uh, excellent source he has a, uh, an organization called time well spent mm -hmm. and he says what you can do to navigate and, and manage these types of kind of this hyper real engineered environment is on your phone uh, take all your apps off your home screen so that you either have to search them or you have to open up to a second screen I have heard that yeah and yeah. just that two or three second pause slows things down or some people won't even look because yeah. it's not right in front of them. Exactly. Yeah, you won't look. No, you will feel compelled to, though. Yeah. Right? If you regularly check Instagram, you regularly check whatever your uh, source is, you will feel that compulsion. Yeah. But when I'm talking about detox, I'm talking about putting like, some of these spaces in. Right. Like uh, where you have to search your webs, uh, uh, search for your actual application. A great thing to do uh, is to turn off notifications. Mm-hmm unless they come from real people. So for example, uh, text. Uh, I'll, I'll talk about my own experiences. I'm working through these issues. Um, I have my, note, my, my phone. There we go. There you go. <laughs> there we go. And it's interesting, as soon as you hear the email, people's dilate yeah. and you breathe in, and you turn to the screen. It's, it's, you see that kind of visceral response, Yeah. right? Anyway, I'm yeah, sorry. Yeah, we plan that. We plan that out right there. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, what was I talking about? 
oh, uh, applications and, and notifications. Tristan Harris talks about uh, turning off notifications unless there's something that comes from a real person, like mm -hmm. a text that comes from a person. Um, turning off email notifications, turning off um, all, all applications, of course, all have positive notifications, turn them all off so that you regulate when you're accessing the notification, the, the application. Mm -hmm. And that creates a huge, huge impact. Because what that does is it now gives you choice and you agency, your, your own you agency back in terms of how you're engineering your environment. Right. Right. Because technology has always been integrated with human thinking. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, the clock. When the clock became ubiquitous and uh, became used everywhere, it completely shifted humans' orientation to space and time. Mm -hmm. And that's technology, pencils, writing, the printing press. Mm -hmm. These things always shape our, our engagement and the way we feel and see the world. Mm -hmm. However, what's different about current technologies is that they're far more adaptive. I don't look at the clock, and then the clock reads, and through a sophisticated set of algorithms, says, you know, he wishes that it was two hours earlier and sets itself back two hours. But that's the kind of intuitive algorithms that underlie your applications. Mm. They watch and they pay, they watch as if they're an agent, mm -hmm. but the, the computational algorithms um, are very good at, at identifying and predicting what rewards work for you, what patterns of behavior you have. And so they structure their notifications and everything to kind of cater to your own kind of psychological structure and make that that makes you want to be there because that's all they want they mm -hmm. want you there because the more you're there the more data they get mm -hmm. and that data is what is used that's funny yeah that that yeah so the the current currency is attention attention like are, are you attending to their apps right? right so when you turn off your notifications what you're now doing is that simple act just gives you a huge space Mm -hmm. that, that allows you to take control kind of over your, when you're going to use an application. If, uh, so think about this, for example. If you uh, wear a Fitbit. Uh, no. <laughs> or a smartwatch or something <laughs> to that effect. That is... That is I'm wearing a Fitbit right now. That's why I said yeah. that. <laughs> it's sending piles of uh, biometric data yeah. that's being recorded on you. There are these, these things are integrated systems which means that your biological rhythms are integrated with other types of applications and so on and so forth, that data can be combined and used right. to maximize your engagement. Mm -hmm. right? mm -hmm. Now, I don't want to be a conspiracy theorist here and be kind of crazy, but if you just control the notifications, already you're uh, stopping the application from saying, Oh hey, it's 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 noon. Lena gets hungry around now, and Yelp sends you a uh, uh, a notification about uh, some sort of kind of food deal or something like that, or Skip right. the Dishes sends you something. Yeah. What you're doing is just giving yourself some space there. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. little things, yeah, detox, giving, uh, taking things off your home screen, and then things like turning off notifications unless they come from real people. Yeah. Uh, Email is a little bit different. Uh, because I want to come back to something you said about email, which is about, about the whole anxiety when people want to get a hold of you. 
what email tends to do is give us a sense of security because we feel like someone's responding to whatever issue is bothering us right now. Control. Control. Instant gratification. Instant gratification, which was hyper real. Right. Reality, you're not instantly gratified. Yeah. Right? And yeah. people don't care about you all the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's reality. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> yeah. Surprise. Yeah. <laughs> so what happens is that a email, uh, email creates an environment where we treat ourselves and other people as uh, what Heidegger once called uh, standing reserves. And a standing reserve is something that you have no ethical obligation towards, like, uh, like water. We treat water as a standing reserve, especially in Canada here where we have so much of it, it's, it comes out of the tap, right? Mm-hmm. You can wash your hands in it, you can spit in it, you mm-hmm. can drink it, you can gurgle it and spit it at somebody if you really feel nasty, but, you, <laughs> but the water doesn't ever say, hey, treat me like a agent, treat me like a person. Mm-hmm. You have no ethical obligation towards it. Now the problem with hyper-reality is that it provides this kind of cognitive benchmark that causes us to treat other people the same way we treat water. We treat them as standing reserves. Things that are constantly available for our use and Mm. we forget that we have ethical obligations to humans. Like uh, that people don't have to be there immediately. So I have a 15 year old and uh, I can send him a text and say how was the day and he may not want to respond but when he needs to get a hold of me, I'll look at my phone and there will probably be 15 texts. Dad, 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 over and over again. <laughs> because he wants it immediately. Now. Yeah, because he, he's, he's a digital native. He's, he's completely grown up in a world of hyper, hyper real world that's completely oriented around him. Right? So navigating these activities, uh, realizing that what happens when we start pulling away, we also start to realize that, hey, we have obligations to other people. That they, like, with, we can realize that our email doesn't have to be answered now. Mm-hmm. Which feel, intuitively, you'd think that'd be really bothersome. But it's actually really freeing. Mm-hmm. Because there's not an, ex- for me, there's not an expectation that someone responds. Yeah. Right? The... Yeah, I'll pause there. I've been talking a lot. No, that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's really interesting. I first, uh, I was acutely aware that when I would go on Instagram, that's mm-hmm. kind of more, I, I remember when Facebook came about, I was working in the mall. I think I was like 16 years old working at a hat stand. This guy came up to me. He's like, have you heard about Facebook? Facebook's the future. Mm-hmm. So it was really interesting. I also grew up with Facebook as well, but Instagram's kind of that more innocuous one for me. But I was acutely aware of how bad I would feel about myself after being on Instagram because it's purely image based. Mm-hmm. Like to the point, though, where I was questioning my marriage and, you know, everyone else's life was much better than mine, questioning my career choices, everything. So I decided to take 10 weeks. I took 10 weeks where I did not go on Instagram. Mm-hmm. And it was amazing. Like it completely changed my life. I think that was over a year ago. And now, uh, when I catch myself just going and thumb crunching my way through Instagram, I realize like, oh, I don't feel good about myself again. I should probably not be on here that much. Or Mm -hmm. post something thoughtful, something intentional, and get off. Mm -hmm. Right? Like, have those healthy boundaries. Mm -hmm. Um, And then another thing that you touched on too, like with the boundaries, is I don't allow 
anyone to infiltrate my morning or my evening. Mm-hmm. So right when I wake up, I don't check Instagram probably until noon because my morning is, is sacred. Mm-hmm. And after nine o'clock, I don't check emails. I don't do any of that. It's usually more like 8.30ish, but like nine is my cutoff not checking anything right Mm -hmm. like morning and night so that could be another way that that -hmm. people can set those boundaries so they're not feeling too overwhelmed at the beginning right yeah yeah well if you think about it um when i talked about detox there we are so used to emotionally regulating with these things Mm -hmm. that a cold turkey cutoff is going to feel like a, 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 com- a completely shocking experience, mm-hmm. just like a detox, mm-hmm. you know, one coming off heroin or so on and so forth. Yeah. Um, I want to go back to something you, you talked about there, which is, I'm going to start with that piece where you talked about feeling bad. Yeah. Because what the research is really clear on is that if you're on Facebook, for example, for 15 minutes, you actually feel okay. Okay. Once you get past that 15 minute, people's mood starts to drop. Interesting. Yeah. And Jaron Lanier... Uh, who, for anyone's interested, he was actually the guy who invented the, the, the VR, virtual reality goggles. Uh, okay. So a tech insider, um, doing really well financially. But he pro, uh, has been talking for a long time about these sorts of applications, and he says the problem is that they're bummers. And now what he means by that is uh, when the applications are designed and sold to um, uh, potential investors or people who want to advertise or that sort of thing. Uh, they talk about, and he talks about this quite regularly, what they call the race to the bottom. Mm-hmm. Now, the race to the bottom is the race to manipulate and impact the primal part of our brain, the part of the brain that regulates sex, that regulates hunger, that regulates kind of all these weird primal drives, the endorphin release places. Mm-hmm. Um, when they, in the industry, talk about the race to the bottom, they're talking about finding a way to manipulate kind of biochemical experience. So you get an uh, endorphin release, that sort of thing, okay? Now, what Lanny has pointed out is that what uh, computational algorithms have, quote, figured out. Mm-hmm. Now remember, all they want is for you to stay there. They, they want you on it. Like for them, four or five hours on Facebook is a gift. Yeah. Because it, you, you you're hooked. You're hooked, and well, they're mining piles of data, yeah. right? Now, uh, what he points out is, well, what have the algorithms figured out? Well, they've figured out that what keeps people on these applications actually isn't positive feelings. What keeps people on applications is like a flame war where someone ticks you off. Mm-hmm. Or ads, uh, like a, or a, a political cartoon or something like that, that invigorates you. And so he calls, them, he calls it the bummer industry because he says, what the algorithms will do is they will push uh, you in a direction where you you it you feel kind of negative, kind of grouchy, kind of resentful, mm-hmm. because these do keep you there. Now, keep in mind. Remember, I said the first fifteen minutes feels good. Yeah. Well, you have had this dopamine hit. You've had this good feeling from going on. So what what the applications do is they will give you uh, they kind of feed you information that's going to aggravate you or frustrate you or get you wanting to be there mm-hmm. however you also intuitively have this experience of the dopamine hit when you first logged on to facebook 
and you know said, hey, I have eight new notifications of people as if you've accomplished something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> new friend request. Look at me. Yeah. You also remember that dopamine hit. Yes. Right. Uh, so Instagram, for example, is really good at uh, recognizing. Uh, and Lanier talks about this, recognizing um, different personality profiles that are using it. So me, I uh, I am just not a gambler. Mm-hmm. I just don't find gambling fun. Mm-hmm. You know, I've never lost a lot of money gambling. Yeah. When I if I were to log on to I got rid of my Instagram account by the way. Anyway, so if I log on to Instagram, my notifications will show up immediately. Somebody who has kind of a gambling style um, personality, their notifications will show up with a three second delay or a two second delay because it simulates that kind of, you know, the slot machine waiting, mm-hmm. it simulates that type of experience for them. So the, the, your engagement with the application is, is structured to manipulate this dopamine hit. And then they, they feed you kind of negativity because it keeps you there. Mm-hmm. And then we keep ch- going back to chase this original dopamine hit. Like so chasing the dragon. Chasing the dragon. And we feel bad. Yeah. And Lanier points us out that, look, we, these are why these things, this is why you feel really bad, you know, and you get this kind of malaise. So mm-hmm. we're caught in this kind of uh, vicious cycle of chasing the hit. Now, I want to be very careful because I'm talking as if there's some sort of agent out there, a nefarious evil person. <laughs> there's not. These are just sophisticated algorithms. And all they want to do is figure out how to keep you there. Yeah. The Illuminati is not behind Instagram. In, absolutely. Just throwing yeah, that out there. <laughs> yeah. And so what we don't want to do uh, is kind of throw everything out the window. Right. Facebook has really good help. Can be very helpful. Mm-hmm. Snapchat can be, keep people connected. Mm-hmm. These things can be used for a lot of good, mm-hmm. but we just need to be s- smart consumers and recognize what they're doing to us, right? right? And how we are kind of depending on them for emotional regulation. Mm-hmm. Right? And you know, if you're the type of person too that gets really insecure when there's an image-based platform, mm-hmm. maybe trying a a platform that's not so image-based like for example a podcast yeah right that was one of my biggest reasons for starting a podcast i used to run a youtube channel and it was so image-based and i found like even though i was putting out content about health and fitness and you know body positivity i'm still spending an hour doing my makeup and my hair before i go on camera and you know buying all the expensive lighting so i look perfect and so there's this dissonance right this dichotomy i'm saying one thing but i'm portraying something completely different yeah right so my actions and my my attitudes are not lining up yeah which makes you not feel good as well absolutely yeah um so you're portraying something and i I really like the fact that you point that out that we can despite our best intentions we find ourselves being kind of sucked into this rhythm Mm -hmm. now the, the tricky thing with uh, what we're talking about, Instagram and all these devices or these, these applications, is, is, is recognizing that we have to set boundaries. Mm-hmm. And in our own conversation so far, the boundaries that you and I have talked about are, I'm just going to make up a name, okay? Sure. I'm going to call them deprivation boundaries. Okay. Right? Yeah. I'm going to move my, remove myself from Instagram. I'm going to move away from a, an image-based source to a text-based source. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. And I think this is the, the biggest misconception about boundaries 
which which is that they're often we think of them about kind of drawing a line that separates us from something and we consider self-care relaxing and not doing anything mm. but those aren't boundaries uh, in my mind those aren't so deprivation boundaries only work uh, if you replace it with something right and the tricky thing is that what you were just talking about this phenomenon where we think oh I should move away from visual mm. to textual based stuff very rarely do we have the moment where we pause and actually can do the self-reflective moment when we say, I need to do this, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And that's what we're talking about with setting boundaries is having that moment of, okay, something's wrong here. Mm-hmm. You have to pull away from it. But then what are you going to do? Right. What's the replacement activity? Right. And because we're sold the story that entertainment is relaxing, we tend to not know what to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, like we would go to a book, uh, we wait, might not clean, or a podcast might seem like too much work. Mm-hmm. But in fact, humans like work. Mm-hmm. It's enjoyable. Yeah, The stuff feels good. Yeah. Working out or activity or going for a walk. And so uh, it, when, I, when we talk about boundaries and navigating, we need to realize that they're not just about pulling ourselves away from something, but identifying, well, what's the activity? Mm-hmm. That's actually going to bring me some joy. Enrich my life. Yeah, enrich my life. Yeah, because mm-hmm. um, people love to do things, mm-hmm. and they feel better when they're doing things. Now, sometimes they're by themselves. Sometimes they're with other people. Yeah. But it's about having this pause, and then identifying positive actions. So uh, several people that I've connected with over this topic, and we've been working through these ideas. The most effective tool for them is a to-do list. Mm. And for me too. What is it that I want to have to do today? Mm-hmm. And I was listening to a podcast a couple of days ago and it was saying, you know, one thing that can make your life a lot richer is identifying your plan and purpose. And what the author was saying was, or the, the podcaster, you can tell I, I read too many books, right? Let <laughs> 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 throw throwback. Uh, what, what the podcaster was saying was not that I should have a grand purpose in life, I'm going to cure, uh, cure cancer, but rather, hey, what's the thing that I want to do this evening? Mm-hmm. What's the thing that I want to accomplish? Right? Uh, and a plan would be like, well, if it doesn't work, what am I going to do? Mm-hmm. Right. So let's say I, I have a partner, and I, I say to her, "Hey, I want to go. Uh, I want to go for a walk tonight. That's what I want to accomplish." And and she says, uh, uh, "No. What's my plan? What's my plan B? <laughs> walk by yourself. Well, maybe, <laughs> yeah. maybe, right? Yeah. Or listen to a podcast or something like that." Yeah. So the the whole point is that when we're talking about setting boundaries, it's about identifying what's your plan and what's your purpose, and not these massive existential. Yes. Again, those are kind of kind of hyper reality. Mm-hmm. But what do you want to do today? Mm-hmm. What you know? Uh, so my my wife and I were talking about this, and and she tried it for the last week. She's been doing this experiment where she's been identifying when she's got downtime mm-hmm. and what her plan and purpose is. And she's like, I'm loving this, because she's just getting things done that she authentically wants to do. Right. And I'm loving it too because the place is much cleaner because a lot of her authentic <laughs> desires are to clean. <laughs> it's a win win. Uh, yeah, I'm sure my husband wishes he had a wife like that as well. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, I want to be careful. I don't tread on too many gender stereotypes. But <laughs> it, it, what uh, this plan and purpose—it's—it it really kind of shapes how we shift our thinking. Yeah. Right. Um, 
small. I like how you touched on like these grand purposes. You know, we feel like, what's my calling in life? Or you, like you said, having this existential crisis. And yeah. We don't have these grand plans, but like, what small purposes can get you to a life that feels good, that can work your way towards a bigger plan? Mm-hmm. But like, all the things that we do every single day, because when we get to something, then we're just on to the next thing anyways. Yeah. Right? Like it's kind of anticlimactic in yeah. a sense, right? Like we ad- achieve this goal, but then we're like, oh, well now what? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? Where it's almost like it, it's the whole journey. I know this sounds super cliche. It's the journey, but like it is the journey that shapes us and molds us where we find the most enjoyment out of it, not like attaining all of these big things. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I mean, I can't answer that because it's what what are people's desires. Yeah. Right. But one thing that I know when I look at my own experience and uh, I mean, I'm an academic, so I'm around people that have PhDs. These are highly accomplished, highly driven, maybe neurotic human beings. Mm -hmm. Right. Where academic folk are kind of quirky. Yeah. And the interesting thing is that no matter what big goal you hit, it never feels like it's enough. Never. Right. Mm -hmm. And I'd argue that hyper reality always puts us in that realm of the big goal and we miss the meaning of the small things Mm. the small things that matter Mm -hmm. Um, like a a couple weeks ago our our family the three of us we have a rule where we go for dinner once a week Um, and we went for dinner and we probably had we had a hilarious time like it was really funny and we joked and laughed and it was fantastic that maybe you could say, well, my goal then is to kind of make a have a great family life, maybe. But that moment was pretty meaningful. Mm-hmm. And I, earlier authors in the nineteen sixties, and then it was later picked up in the nineteen nineties by an author named named Borgman, Albert Borgman, in a beautiful little book called Crossing the Postmodern Divide. He was really was talking about hyper reality then already. Wow. And if you only if you only knew, right, where things were going. Yeah. So this is pre-internet. Uh, Borgman talks about the problem with hyper reality is we actually lose touch with meaning. Because what matters in life are these moments where uh, you laugh with people, or um, you know something goes wrong, mm-hmm. but it's okay. You watch someone take their last breath. Yeah, their last breath, or someone hits a goal. They yeah. want, right? yeah, or these, or these moments like the other day when I was listening to this podcast, this aha moment. Yeah, I need a plan and a purpose. Mm-hmm. These kind of moments, like wow, they're rich, they're beautiful, they're dynamic, they're exciting, but we miss them because hyper reality is so engineered, mm-hmm. right? It's kind of like going to Disneyland, which is a completely engineered environment, and you just don't taste how good the ice cream is. Yeah, right. Totally. And what Borgman talked about was he said we need to be very careful because we need to tune into meaning mm-hmm. and what things mean to us and how they're valuable. And that's where the good stuff is, mm-hmm. is in that, that space of kind of, wow, like this is interesting, this is surprising. Because mm-hmm. one of the problems with hyper-reality that, that, that Borgman talks about is we're never surprised. It's a completely engineered environment. But what do we keep seeing from politicians and what do we need in society right now? We've got really big, complicated problems. We need innovation. Mm-hmm. Innovation happens in those weird moments. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And 
what we we uh, need are the, the space for these kinds of weird moments and this kind of meaningful life. Mm-hmm. And so what Borgman talks about is moving away from what he called hyper-realities to what he called focal realities. And he said, focal realities are the things that we care about. Right? We care about uh, that our friends here in Alberta are losing their jobs. Mm-hmm. We care about the fact that you know, we have a, a, a goddaughter that has Down syndrome that's struggling with some issues. Mm-hmm. We care about, um, you know, the the way uh, difficulties that are faced in, in higher education. There's these things that are shared matters of concern mm-hmm. that we might not agree on, but we're unified on the fact that they're worthwhile talking about. Mm-hmm. Those, he said, are focal realities. And those are the things we, we need to work on tuning into because they're about how we relate to other people and they get us outside of ourselves because anxiety and terror <laughs> the existential terror we feel of everyday life is tied into these um, this kind of like we're locked inside of ourselves we're locked yeah. inside this hyper real highly engineered environment mm-hmm. but the focal realities are about kind of shared objects of concern about relationships between you and I and people around us and he said tune into those those focal realities, they give us, one, a connection with other people, and they open up a real discussion and real dialogue. Because, mm-hmm. for example, if you want to have a real dog, let's start dialogue, let's start talking about pipelines mm-hmm. yeah. in Canada right now. <laughs> in Calgary. In Calgary. <laughs> exactly. This, this is a serious thing. It is. Right? Yeah. We're talking about indigenous issues. We're talking about violations of land treaties and not, and corporations, and mm-hmm. people whose job right now who may be listening to this podcast are dependent on that. Mm-hmm. These focal realities matter. Mm-hmm. Now, the problem is that we actually get pushed away from the focal realities through kind of the engineered hyper-real environment. Yeah. And it's just so focused on self. Yeah. And that doesn't actually make us feel good like you think it would, but it actually doesn't make you feel good to just always think about yourself. Yeah. It's a twisted notion of self-care. Yeah. yeah. In the 1960s, an uh, author named Herbert Marcuse was already writing about the entertainment industry and how it actually f- forces us to look back on ourselves in a way that actually doesn't help us set proper boundaries or know what we want. Mm-hmm. It just sucks us into a kind of anesthetic state. We said, no, we need to move into an aesthetic state, a, a state where you wake up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And... It's about self and other relations. And the problem is our boundaries are off. We often, when we set boundaries around stuff, we do it, we have a deprivation model. Mm-hmm. And we say, oh, it's all about us. Mm-hmm. Uh, just about me getting away. Mm-hmm. Well, no, it's more, what are the focal realities? What are the things that matter? Right. Uh, who are the people you can laugh with? Yeah. Uh, and getting into these kinds of spaces which are not about self. Yeah. Right? Now the problem, sorry. No, I was going to say, and that probably would drastically reduce anxiety as well. Because I feel like if we're so focused on ourself, mm-hmm. anxiety is always going to be a byproduct. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And well, guess what happens when you're in a real world instead of hyper real world? Things don't go your way. Yeah. Turns out you survive. You lose your job, you move on. Yeah. <laughs> like, like people survive things. Mm hmm. And a hyper-reality puts us in an environment where we're completely risk-averse. Right. That we don't have experience with failure or things not working or confusion or these moments, these aha moments, these really interesting, surprising moments either. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so we need these kinds of spaces to to be surprised, to be connected, mm-hmm. and yeah. So obviously, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. Yeah, yeah. but uh, it it sometimes makes me question like if people can stay kind of stuck in this false reality and not have these aha moments, like what is this going to create long-term? What kind of oh dear. humanity would it create long-term? You know, are, are the powers that be yeah. trying to generate this community that's so out of touch with themselves because it, it makes them less powerful individually and collectively? Wow. Now we're we're talking crystal ball stuff yeah. here. And so who knows? Who knows? Because, you know, humans have been around on this planet for a while. And what that means is we've had kind of ebbs and flows of all sorts of things. Right. So we'll probably survive this. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, and so 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 who who knows? Right. Uh, but we um, what things will look like in the future. The thing that concerns me um is this uh, this notion of what it's doing to our capacity to think? Yeah. Um, an author named Carr writes a book called The Shallows: What the Internet's Doing to Our Thinking, and uh, he's he was talking about how it's changing the way we look at information. So, I when I first started being a prof uh, about eleven years ago, I had this moment where I realized I, I was co-teaching a course with a colleague. That was uh, at the end of his career. He's in his late six, early late sixties, something like that. I think he's over sixty-five. He's about retiring, and we were trying to work out the course outline. And I realized he thought of time on a horizontal plane, mm-hmm. beginning to end. Mm-hmm. I thought of time top to bottom, because I've been using Microsoft Word, mm-hmm. right, mm-hmm. and that's how I orient information. And then I realized it about the same time or the next five or so years that my students orient the information in terms of multi-dimensional spaces because they're used to navigating virtual space. So you see three different orientations of information and time, mm. right? Mm-hmm. Now the problem right now is what Carr addresses is how are we thinking about information? And right now we think about information in terms of quick bites, quick, short snippets. Mm-hmm. And Carr says that probably this is the biggest danger that we're going to see in the future is that instead of thinking about information as a complex nuanced kind of web we think of it as simplified bits and bytes like a reductionist viewpoint yeah really reductionist yeah and then so we think about ourselves that way which is horrifying Mm. because yeah we are very sophisticated complicated webs of all sorts of things yeah but we also think of others and issues which means people vote for example, on a byline, right? On a quick soundbite, mm-hmm. right? And information becomes a uh, uh, kind of all about quick soundbites. And what Carr says is that's probably the biggest danger as we move forward into the next generation is the capacity to think with kind of complex nuance. And so what it does is it, the risk is that it pushes us back into thinking in terms of kind of early adolescent ways. So interesting. Thinking. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess for your purposes, my thing in the podcast here is what happens when we do that about ourselves? We stop thinking about how we can feel, for example, we should love the person we're with. Mm-hmm. Well, not always. 
Sometimes we do, sometimes we don't. Mm -hmm. We should be 100% committed to something. No, probably not. Uh, and we end up with this kind of almost an alienation from ourselves. Mm. And we don't recognize the complexity of who we are and what we're doing. Mm -hmm. Right? So this notion of information out there becomes turned back on ourselves and we simplify our own self-knowledge. Right. So if I were to ask, uh, for example, a lot of my students, if I ask them, what do you like to do? They don't know the answer to that question. Like, it's quite common. Really? They, they don't know what they like to do. Huh. They'll, they'll, they'll usually they'll be kind of a giggle and kind of a laugh, and they'll see something like Netflix, hang out with friends. And like right away, run. Yeah, like run. run. Well, yeah. Well, was, what's interesting is people, uh, youth that have some sort of passion, like a sport. Yeah. Or a, mu a, a music, right? Some of these types of things that you can't, do in a hyper real way yeah like you cannot become a competitive athlete in a hyper real way you no. gotta do the you gotta do your work yeah. you can't become a great musician in a hyper real way mm -hmm. you also can't become a high literate person in a hyper real way you have to read and engage in books deeply mm -hmm. the same with self-awareness is not about it's easy, quick understanding. It's disciplined, difficult things. These people that would go to something like run or uh, like uh, my son, for example, is obsessed with a particular sport that he works on, works on. Football. It, yeah, football. <laughs> this <is> soccer. Yeah. <laughs> it provides a uh, almost like a buffer of resilience to some of his hyper reality mm. because he is confronted with his failures, mm -hmm. which is a good thing, by the mm -hmm. way, right? Uh, now, failure, I mean... We say failure, people have little freakouts because everyone's allergic to failure. But mm -hmm. failure is when, like, no, oh, you make a mistake, and that's okay. Mm -hmm. right? mm -hmm. So it's okay to dwell in this land of kind of ambiguity and these types of passions, these types of kind of human focal reality things. They snap us out of this um, kind of almost anesthetic state. So someone like yourself who says, "Well, go to running," well, that's excellent. Mm -hmm. A lot of people just can't do that. Mm -hmm. um, or if you ask them what's their favorite color these types of things these are really these are things that's that, so interesting yeah because why because we're because we're not engaged we're not engaged well and Instagram knows what your favorite color is yeah quote unquote knows yeah um, and uses that for you right <laughs> and, and, and no, these wow. things are so there's a progressive uh what I'm seeing, and this is my own conjecture now, so I'm stepping away from the data here. My own conjecture is the biggest danger we'll, we'll see in the future is a lack of kind of almost authenticity or ability to be faithful to oneself. Like we get in relationships and we don't authentically know what we like, need, or want, mm. right? Or who we are in that relationship, mm -hmm. right? Because we have just lost the capacity to know ourselves, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Which of course creates chronic anxiety because it's always to, what we're looking is to that hyper-real environment to always affirm us. Mm -hmm. So in university education, the number one, uh, Deborah Cox writes a book called The Fear, College Fear Factor, uh, COX is her name, uh, Deborah Cox, and she notes that the number one coping strategy for students to deal with anxiety is not handing things in because by not handing something in, they're not gonna be evaluated. So the zero that the student gets is not a reflection of themselves because 
the, we're used to a hyper real environment that always affirms us mm -hmm. and then you come to university class where I, I, my impression is that university is not a place where you want to go for affirmation there's a, there's a no. lot of tensions a lot of difficulties mm -hmm. a lot of pushback mm -hmm. so the so students are, are chronically anxious you know uh, highly anxious because they've never been in an environment which wasn't engineered a non-hyper-real environment. Because high schools now, I was talking to a girl, I'm, I have a class with her every single day. We have two classes together. Mm. She's 19. I'm going to be 31 in a month and a little bit. So there's a bit of a, a discrepancy there. Um, and just how we grew up. I grew up in small town Saskatchewan where like, if you failed class, they would hold you back. That mm -hmm. meant not graduating until you were 20 years old. That meant you were not graduating until you were 20 years old. And she even said that that wouldn't ever happen now. You can't fail high school. Yeah. You just can't. Mm -hmm. And so they come to university and they get a B plus and they want to slit their wrists. And I'm like, wake up. Yeah. If you're getting A pluses for everything, well, then anyone can come and get a degree. Mm -hmm. Right? Like this is, this is real life where you can fail. Yeah. Yeah. And paradoxically... It's that experience of possibility of failure that actually helps us with dealing with life on life's terms. Resilience. Resilience. Mm -hmm. um, but we're so used to these emotional regulators that protect us from it mm. that we don't engage it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's a really common, common story. Right? So wrapping things up, leaving our listeners with something thoughtful to, to end with, what, would, what kind of advice would you give? our listeners oh wow putting you on the spot now yeah well I would say look I, I've dropped lots of names and I would say check it out yeah T take a look at uh, some of the people I've referred to most of the, they're all kind of popular writers I'm not talking about a lot of academic writers here mm -hmm. take a look at what they say and, and just just reality test what I'm saying Mm -hmm. that'd, be, that'd be one thing to do. Take a look and see if there's something legit there. And then I think a second point is to give yourself permission to uh, unplug a bit mm -hmm. and ask, pay attention to your own bodily cues. Like, why does my heart rate go up until I check my email? Why do I need to uh, get online right now? I think um, another third thing I'd really recommend, try using browsers because most of our internet engagement is through applications. But using an old school browser to do the same thing mm. uh, provides a far less engineered environment, mm. if that makes sense. Yep. Right? Um, so, and I would also say the fourth thing is trust yourself. There's nothing there to be scared of. Mm. Just learn to do an authentic moral inventory about who you are and where you're at, and, and take a look. Yeah. And trust your intuition. Uh, not that you can't be self-deceived, but at least you can ask the question. Yeah. yeah. Well, that that is so. I mean, we could just go on talking forever, but we will end there. Uh, thank you so much for yeah. coming on the show and. That is all for today. Thank you guys so much, and we will talk to you soon. Thank you so much for tuning into today's podcast. 
I hope you enjoyed our discussion and gained better insight into how you can be the healthiest version of yourself that you can be. Don't forget to subscribe to my channel on iTunes and please leave me a review so we can get this message of better health out there. Have a great day and remember, you are powerful over your health.